Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we're joined today by a special guest. He's co-host of the Losers Club podcast and culture editor for the AV Club. But you probably know him as uh, from the documentary Best Worst Movie. <laughs> he is Randall Colburn. Hi. Pod, Randall. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to discuss my greatest <laughs> achievement in life, which was which was uh, being part of the Troll 2 cult. <laughs> hey, awesome. if you got to be part of a cult, that's a pretty one, good one to be a part of. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so today is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that don't really scare us. They actually make us feel good. Maybe they're the ones we watch for self-care or ones that we loved as a kid. And wow, do we have a comfort <laughs> horror movie to talk about today. <laughs> Uh, Randall, what movie did you choose to talk about? I chose Troll 2. Hell, uh, hell yeah. The, the not quite sequel to Troll, which starred <laughs> Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, yeah. Uh, should I unpack my history with this movie or should I wait a moment? Let's wait till the yeah. uh, feelings check because I have a lot of questions about this. Yes. <laughs> How dare you um, be one of those questions? Yeah, Mike wrote in our Facebook group, just tell Randall he made a powerful enemy yes. today. <laughs> <laughs> so can't wait to talk about it. Um, but before we do, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen this movie or you saw it and still don't know what the fuck just happened. So here is your spoiler warning. Well, spoilers. where to begin? <laughs> Let's begin with Joshua and his grandpa. 
Joshua's <laughs> grandpa is is reading him a delightful bedtime story about a man named Peter who meets a forest girl with very natural freckles that seduces him and feeds him weird, weird green goop. This makes him sweat chlorophyll and turn into food for forest goblins who then eat him. Surprise! Grandpa's actually been dead for six months, and he's been visiting Joshua from beyond the grave to warn him of imminent goblin attack. Thus begins the insanity. <laughs> I really wanted to write, Grandpa's been dead for 10 years. <laughs> the longer he hasn't he'd... been a grandpa in these parts <laughs> since the old mill burned down. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it. honestly, that could be a plot point. <laughs> I mean, hell, why not? When they do trolls, exactly. troll two part two, that's what will be. I, I'm still. I need updates on that. But anyway, All back right. to the synopsis. <laughs> Joshua's father, Michael, mother Diana, and bodybuilding teen sister Holly head off to a home swap vacation in the <laughs> town of Nilbog, which definitely doesn't spell anything backwards. And a home swap vacation is definitely a thing that people do. Uh, is it really? No, I've never <laughs> heard the, heard or seen of this outside of this film. Uh, Holly was that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, sounds kind of uh, uh, frightening. Holly's boyfriend right. Elliot passes up the opportunity to ride in the family van, but follows along in an RV with his group of friends, who for some reason are convinced they'll find available women in a town of around twenty-seven people. <laughs> Turns out the super creepy family whose home they're staying in has left a weird and green feast for them. But Grandpa Seth warns Joshua that it's goblin food and freezes time Zach Morris style, allowing Joshua <laughs> to do the only reasonable thing he can do to keep his family safe. Pee on all the food. <laughs> Events unfold bizarrely as Elliot's friends meet a hilariously awesome witch named Credence Lenore Gilgood, the mother or queen of the goblins, who tries to feed them either green goblin food or green goblin milk. Once they partake, they will turn into green food for the goblins to eat. Or maybe they'll just turn into a talking tree. Who knows? Whatever. Uh, <laughs> turns out the super creepy townspeople are all in on the goblin plot and guided by a meat-hating minister throw a party in the family's vacation home. But it's all a ruse to get them to eat the goblin food. None of us are exactly sure what happens next. Suffice to say it involves the witch having popcorn sex, sandwiches for tonight, and something that involves the stone from Stonehenge. Ultimately, the goblins are defeated and the family gets away. Once they return home, Diana fails to notice how weird it is to store a big bowl full of apples in the fridge and eats one before taking a shower. <laughs> Joshua finds that the apples were secretly goblin apples and that his mother is now goblin food as she is devoured by, you guessed it, goblin. Scream freeze frame. Where's the Tylenol? Where were the trolls? What just happened? <laughs> the end. I have one quibble wow. with, with your synopsis, which is that uh -oh. um, you neglected to mention how the goblins are defeated, which is uh, via double-decker bologna sandwich. Yes, that really oh, should have made right. the synopsis. It should have. I'm sorry. Which, uh, sorry. what I've always loved is they clearly just opened up a pack of bologna, took every piece <laughs> of bologna in it, and put it between two buns. And it's so like, eat it, eat yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she's saying things I like, I forgot about like, that. Like, uh, think of the cholesterol. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that was the original oh ending gosh. of the new Karate Kid as well. How, <laughs> oh, what? That's how Hillary Swank was going to defeat. <laughs> he just pulls out a stack of bologna. Yes. yes. Bologna is so gross. It's not, right. not, it's not good. I want to editorialize. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so, so now let's do a feelings check. And we talked about this quite a bit in our episode on the Babadook, but we think it's really important to practice identifying emotions because that's how we get better at understanding ourselves and understanding each other. And so this is the section where we talk about how we feel when we watch this movie. And Randall, so you chose this movie and you're actually, we mentioned this earlier, but you're actually featured in the documentary about it, Best Worst Movie, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. <laughs> um, so what was your first experience with Troll 2? How does it make you feel when you watch it? And like, wh- how did you get to be in that documentary? Sure. Uh I love this movie. I first saw it, I was really into bad movies, you know, like quote unquote bad movies in college. Uh, my my gateway bad movie was a 1990 action film called McBain that stars Christopher Walken. <laughs> it is it is so funny. And so we had kind of a bad movie watching group. And then um, one day a buddy of mine basically showed up with Troll with a VHS copy of Troll 2 and really had no clue because we watched a lot of bad horror movies. Um, but we had, I thought this was going to be another run of the mill one, but we really just lost our minds while we were watching it. It was one of, and I think that my feelings are a lot rooted in my first viewing or maybe my first couple of viewings. Just um, there's such a sense of, I mean, especially when you're young and drunk and maybe a little stoned, like there is, <laughs> there is such a sense of discovery of like, I can't believe this is real when you were first watching it. And this is, you know, this was before people kind of started setting out to make bad movies like Birdemic and stuff. Which are still fun, but, you know, they're not as pure. Uh, like, this movie was was made with the best of intentions, which Best Worst Movie really uh, depicts. But, you know, it's I think what I love about Troll 2 is it's not boring. Um, it, it moves. Like, every time the sto- you think you've got a grip on the story, they introduce another crazy uh, <laughs> twist that it just makes... It's just really wild. And, the, and then just... It's, like, so perfectly like late 80s early 90s like turn of the 90s like aesthetic and the dialogue is so horribly stilted which we can talk more about because there's reasons why and just the general premise of the movie is crazy and one of the so basically we became so obsessed with this movie it kind of became uh sort of the the fortification for a friendship i had with a buddy named tim marklevitz who is also featured in best worst movie and him and i basically we just both love bad movies and we loved just all movies. And so we kind of started filming because we were all part of the film and TV department uh, in my college. And we would just always have a camera on and we started just doing like bad movie reviews, like as a joke, like while we were just filming um, edit room stuff, you know? And, uh, and that kind of just blossomed into us making like him editing together these little bad movie reviews that were called B rated. And when our, our most popular episode was about troll too. And like, this was in the early days of YouTube. I feel like mm-hmm. this was maybe 2008, 2007, 2006. It was around there. And, uh, and we actually had a decent following and, and Tim and I like kick ourselves for giving up on it. Cause I, we were on like the ground floor and we could have, if we had stuck with B rated, which was our movie review show, I feel like. Uh, things might be different for me now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I have those kind of thoughts all the time because I was like almost put all these things on YouTube. At the, so, but I understand the feeling. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, but, you know, Troll 2 was kind of the inciting incident for that. And it was it was uh, so I think the feelings I have for it, it initially started with sort of um, a sense of like excitement about showing it to other people and, um, you know, sharing it was and this idea of community, because we would have these parties that blossomed to like 30 people like crammed into a living room, all watching Troll 2. And we did that with a lot of bad movies, but Troll 2 nights were usually the most fun. 
because um, like a lot of the bad movies we like, there'll be stretches of it that are kind of interminable. And I think the troll two is, is fun because it just, it's never really that boring. And uh, yeah, so I, I associated with that, but these days I associated, I think more with um, nostalgia and a pretty important time of my life. This movie weirdly was um, a lot of friendships were sort of built around it. Cause it's bad movie nights. I was really close with, and it was kind of a new group of people that I was hanging out with and who I'm still friends with to this day. And uh, the whole movie review show that Tim and I did, it was, it was, again, it was something that was like kind of weirdly special to us. It was a, it was kind of the building block of our friendship and we went on to be really close. And, um, and yeah, so I think I'll always, I'll always associate it with him. And, uh, and now, and then I, I also have just a lot of nostalgia for uh, becoming part of the documentary because that was just such a fun time in my life. I had just moved to Chicago. It was 2008. And we had been doing B-rated for a couple of years. Um, and then we, it was via MySpace. This is how old this was. Oh, wow. uh, we got like, yeah, the, the director of the movie, well, there was like a best worst movie MySpace page. And we didn't know what that was necessarily, except for that we thought it was like a Troll 2 fan page, but it turned out to be a page that was dedicated to this sort of, you know, grassroots documentary that was being made by the child star of the movie. So it's what been 20 some years like and he is no longer a child actor, but he's a budding director. And so he makes this documentary and he saw our B-rated video um, somehow. I don't know, but he saw a review of it and um, basically was like, oh, we want to talk to you guys for the documentary. And I had just moved to Chicago. So um, he was like, well, we're coming through Chicago. We're doing a midnight screening to help you know promote the documentary and and because they were filming all these midnight screenings for the documentary and basically they tapped tim and i to host it and this was at the music box theater in um chicago mm-hmm. in 2008 which is oh one of my havens i've been missing it during this same pandemic, but even just watching that little clip in the documentary of you guys i like <laughs> literally my heart almost stopped like <laughs> i was like <laughs> well that was yeah. yeah and that was such a fun night too because all my friends came out and um and tim and i were like trying to rep our youtube series and everybody booed us when we tried to talk about it during our intro they didn't show that part because they were just like get to the movie um and so uh but yeah and then the next day so basically you know we met all them that night did the hosting thing talked to everybody like uh, all not everybody but you know a lot of the stars of the movie were there george hardy who plays the dentist uh best part well no he is a dentist in real life he plays um, the dad yes (laughs) the dad mr waits i think his name is and um and then you know we met the, the the kid who plays Joshua and the guy who plays um his name's Darren in real life I can't he's the guy with the glasses who gets hit with the spear yeah he oh was, my yeah, god <laughs> yeah oh my god guy he was there and like they're all just super nice guys and they're kind mm-hmm. of like just they all have like you know interesting lives outside of this like the guy who plays Elliot is like a New York Times bestselling author now and wow. um yeah and some of like uh but then other guys you know are like the guy who plays the store owner was in a mental institution and is clearly unwell. And um, so they all have these like unique, strange lives. A lot of them, one guy makes music, like some of them just have normal jobs. And uh, they, and so they were just kind of like, so uh, bemused by this weird cult that had popped up around the movie. And yeah, so the next morning they were like, well, can we, inter- can we interview you for the documentary? And we said, yeah. And, you know, we weren't quite prepared. We didn't know what this was going to be. We thought we thought maybe they were going to like re-release the movie and then have this like 15-minute documentary on, and we didn't know if we'd actually like make it in the documentary. So, um, and it took about you know we did the interview in 2008, and I think the movie came out in maybe late 2009, 2010. It was maybe around there, and yeah, and then they premiered it. Well, they didn't premiere, but they showed it at the Music Box, 
Uh, and I got to go with like all my friends and that was, it was just such like a, like a fun thing. And then they did a midnight screening mm -hmm. of, of troll two. And uh, so I associate it with friendship and good times and nostalgia and all those sorts of things. And, um, and it's kind of fun to feel, you know, I'm not like a big fandom guy, but like, it's kind of fun to be part of a fandom mm -hmm. uh, at mm -hmm. the same time. And uh, so for me, it's like being part of the Troll 2 fandom, like uh, being <laughs> an early adopter of it and being in the documentary and everything. I still get people from high school who see it or like, because it, it cycles in and off Netflix occasionally. Mm -hmm. And whenever it hits Netflix again, I always get somebody from high school who reaches out to me about uh, about being in that. And they're like, that was that you? And uh, <laughs> and some and somebody found saw the trailer recently because I'm in the trailer for the movie as well. So and they sent it to me and they're like, I can't believe this. And so um, but yeah, and I'm like, I'm, I've stayed in touch in a lot of ways with um with the creators like i went you know the day we did the interview we all went to ann sather in chicago together and i was <laughs> sitting at a table with george hardy and um the director and several other people uh from the movie and like george hardy was the sweet like he's just like he is in the documentary he's like the sweetest uh most gentle man and he i just remember <laughs> he put his arm around me and he's like tell me all about be right and like <laughs> it was like and like Aww. it was just this stupid thing that my buddy and I were doing uh but then he moved to LA I was in Chicago and so uh, sadly the show died out but but George Hardy and I um were Facebook friends and he uh sends me messages on it whenever he has a new movie coming out cuz he actually still pops up and stuff not wow. he's he's not a professional actor or anything but I think people who love troll too uh, bring him in mm -hmm. as uh, as kind of just a fun presence and um and like one of the movies that he was in I think came out last year uh it actually played some festivals and did fairly well um and I so I like you know at AV, I work at AV Club and I would write up the trailer for one of his movies or something and he would always send me a message and thank me profusely oh. and write these extremely oh. long messages that are horribly you know like not spelled well <laughs> uh just like when my mom writes anything on facebook and it's mm. he's very like he's very happy boomer energy which i love mm -hmm. but yeah so he'll always reach out uh like i remember i was at south by southwest last year and i was a little bit tipsy and i walked out of a bar and i was with a bunch of my friends and i looked down and george hardy was facebook messaging me about some movie and uh i like showed all my friends and i was like <laughs> losing my mind i'm like he still talks to me and wow. um and which just makes me happy so yeah that's kind of my journey with it it's it's for me it's just all good vibes you know um mm -hmm. because it just represents sort of communion gathering this isn't it's like the room like the cult around the room too you know and mm -hmm. um it's like you go you watch it alone in your apartment and it's kind of mad, but if you watch it in a theater with a bunch of screaming idiots, it's the best time. <laughs> and that's to me, my favorite part of like bad movies is mm -hmm. I'm not somebody who just, yeah, I don't watch them like at home or anything. I, and that's another thing that I'm just missing about theaters is like going to see some batshit thing on screen and, and just hollering and hooting at the movie at the screen. <laughs> that's just one of my favorite things. Um, uh about you know those kind of screenings so so you know there's almost almost this pain of sadness when i talk about it because i'm just like mm. i miss those experiences mm -hmm. of like you know communal gatherings and and uh much revelry so mm. and laura what about you i have a similar journey with it obviously i was not in the documentary nor have i had you know cinnamon buns at ann sather with <laughs> hardy, but, but I, you know, I think I watched it. God, I, like usual, I can't remember the exact moment that I first watched it. Um, but I, I know it was sometime in the early, you know, somewhere between 2008 and 2011, somewhere in there. And it was with a group of friends because we would do the same thing where we would try to track down 
famous cult movies, famous bad movies. We, there used to be this uh, video rental shop called Odd Obsession in Chicago where I would go and, we, you know, you'd get recommendations for things like that and then go and I would watch a lot of things with some friends or with my ex-boyfriend and we had the same experience where it was just so batshit bananas crazy and we were all laughing <laughs> at it. And um, I also, I have that same kind of nostalgic just laughing my ass off at it connection to it but I do really think it's a it's just such a unique move I'm, I'm some I'm also a connoisseur of trash cinema and bad movies and I've, I've you know and um unlike a lot of others like Randall said that there's there's not really any stretch in this movie that you could ever call boring or that's hard to sit through and one of the things we've been doing this year in the pandemic is on discord me and my friends every Saturday night we watch a bad movie and we talk over it so it's kind of it's not quite as good as like the theatrical hooting and hollering <laughs> experience, but it's us just screaming over this movie and making, you know, making jokes with each other. And of the movies we've watched over the course of 2020, Troll 2 was by far the like one of the biggest hits amongst that group of folks, you know, um, because we were all just genuinely enjoying it, like in a way that a lot of the movies we watch fall into a category of like punishment film, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which uh, I'm, uh, it's kind of like more like in the vein of a talking cat or something where there's just like, <laughs> you know, but I'm, I, I'm the same way. I'm obsessive about bad movies and anything that is within the horror genre that is a bad movie is like the cream of the crop to me. If you can find a good, earnest, bad horror movie is one of the best things in Troll 2, I think epitomizes that. And I think there are some things in this movie that are like genuinely a little gross and maybe almost bordered on like getting towards something frightening. But the whole yeah. the whole stew that it's in is so absurd that it makes it impossible to ever engage with it on that level for me, at least, you know, <laughs> but I just I find it hilarious. I love it. I mean, and it was just such a treat earlier this year watching it with this group of friends that I watch bad movies with. You know, we were all just laughing our asses off like. And we, we all now, and now they all say, oh, my God, and all this kind of stuff, which is why it was kind of like fresh <laughs> on my mind when you brought it up, Randall. So I was super excited to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, along the lines of it, there being a few kind of genuinely gross moments, I still kind of like cover my eyes a little bit when they eat the the blonde woman. Yeah, like, it is a little gross and frightening. Because it just, it just like, like green goo, you know? And it looks it's like, fatty. It looks like there's yeah, chunks of fat in it or something. There's chunks in yeah. it. And they're like, and they're sm swishing their hands around in it, the little, <laughs> the little goblins. Yes. And it's it, yeah. that to me is like the one moment of the movie where I'm like, this is kind of like making my stomach turn a little bit. So For me, it's that. Yeah. And also when the guy is turning into a tree and they rip the thing off his face, you know, oh, yeah. like there's something about, mm -hmm. that's what I mean, it almost borders on like genuine body horror at a few moments, but it's mm -hmm. too silly looking to, but, but there are some moments right. where I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, Mike it's your uh, turn. I'm a little afraid to ask. <laughs> so, you know, I think I've said this before. I try to approach everything like even if it's something that I don't like, it's someone else's favorite movie. <laughs> so we are definitely going to test that. Um, <laughs> we're going to test my stance on that. I have a really weird relationship with really bad movies at this point. Like everyone has said here, like there's been points where like I would get together with friends, like we would throw the invisible maniac on VHS, like, into the tape player and like every Saturday night there would be like a basement show. Everyone would go home. Six of us would crash on a friend's couch and we would just like eat bad food, get drunk and watch like the invisible maniac until 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. and hoot and holler and laugh like things like that. In 2010, I had just started like a independent movie night in Boston in a little cinema in Somerville. 
we got like a 35 seat theater for real cheap uh it was right next to what they called the museum of bad art which is a <laughs> museum of bad art in their lobby and we would book all of this like really good like independent horror movies we would we got like there's a vampire movie that uh, Michael Parks and A.J. Bowen star in called Maidenhead, which is kind of like a riff on Martin that I don't know if ever even have got released. Um, we got like the early films from the Saskas. We got early films from like Benson and Moorhead. We got um, The Battery, uh, oh, yeah. which is after, mm -hmm. you know, so we were getting like all these great indie horror and we would show like tons of short films with it all the time too. And it was a struggle to get 30 to 35 people in this little cinema for like five to 10 bucks. Like we did it really cheap because our price, because we just got the cinema so cheap. But if you showed something like the room or troll two at like, it would fill out a 250 seat theater. And that always annoyed me. That just like, <laughs> it really gets under my skin because you have like these great, you know what I think like you, what you look back on is like this great run of like independent horror. And month after month, like for literally every month for five years, we um, booked this thing. And it was like a struggle to do. Like, I think there was one month, a one month my sister and her then fiance came, nobody showed up. Mm. It was embarrassing. So to have that happen and then to be like, oh, look, there's like one night there was like a line out the door for the room. So I really struggle at this point with like the so bad that it's good mm -hmm. cinema. Because I'm like, there's so many great independent films, especially within horror, that get completely ignored. So it's really, and it was just really frustrating. So that's kind of the relationship I have. Like, I, I think Best Worst Movie is a fantastic documentary. And I think it's great that there is so much heart in it. And like, you know, that everybody involved kind of like loves that they took part, but don't take it too serious. I would say that um stevenson the director of that went on to direct one of my favorite documentaries the american screen i love that movie yeah which, oh is oh that the, God, the haunted like, house people yeah, yeah yeah i love that documentary. which are yeah which i got to see the world premiere of that at fantastic fest and flew home with one of the families like featured and what was great is they actually he did go on for a few years to do a professional haunt and we got to like tour it one year um, it was really fun so I think he has like an eye for like these really heartfelt documentaries that feel good. And it's not that I don't like bad movies. Like God knows, like I do, I run a show where like we've had to do all the critters films. Like at some point <laughs> we're going to get to like the puppet master movies. Um, one of my favorite direct to video series of the nineties are the, like the subspecies series is vampire yeah. series. It was shot like in Romania on the cheap, but, um, I don't know. It's just like there's so much batshit stuff going on in this, but it's so weird and disjointed. I remember watching it last night and like I would just pause it every 30 minutes and go watch an episode of Cobra Kai because <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I'm just like, I just couldn't sit and I, and I do this thing sometimes where I'll like fast forward to the end of a movie to be like, well, there's got like, it says an hour 35, but. There's probably at least like three or four minutes of credits. And there are like a minute and 15 seconds of credits to this movie. So I was just like, there really is 40 something minutes left to this right now. I hate every choice that I've made in my life. It's to me having to sit here. Like I was questioning like, 
why did I go to this particular college? <laughs> you know, Jesus if Christ. I it was like a butterfly. <laughs> it was like the butterfly effect. And it, I think to, to Randall's point, like I'm sitting alone and like watching it on my sofa. Yeah. On a Saturday night. It's not ideal. In the middle of a pandemic. It's definitely not. You know, and under the influence of nothing except seltzer. <laughs> you know, like that's the hardest thing in my system these days. So, you know, what I think I am going to enjoy is the discussion around the movie. <laughs> so I think that that's going to be a really fun way to pass like 90 It's a very minutes. diplomatic you know I mean? way like, of putting it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because like, you know, I think that that's going to be like the really fun thing is like hearing other people talk about something they love. And have a lot of passion for to me is always great. Mm-hmm. Um, unless that thing is Mandy. <laughs> Here we go again with the Mandy takedowns. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're gonna have to have a Mandy rant corner at some point. That's one of our Patreon oh, things God. we can discuss is <laughs> Mike's Mandy, Mandy rant. Mike's Mandy mandates. I don't know. Mike's Mandy. Yeah. We need something. Mm-hmm. We need a third. Manti Mandy. M and M's. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll workshop. <laughs> I am. I'm looking forward to like the the talk on this more than anything <laughs> mm-hmm. else. This was this was a first watch for me, and I had never heard of this oh. until you suggested it, Randall. And I actually asked you, do I have to watch Trolls 1? <laughs> Which Troll made me laugh. I, know. <laughs> I thought you were joking, and I didn't realize it was because you had never seen this one before. <laughs> oh, no, because I didn't. I'd never heard of it. Which, yeah, now I get the joke now. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, okay. Um, I, I don't love bad movies, and I think... The part of the reason is because I just don't really have that many people in my life that I physically see that are really into horror. So yeah. I've never really had a lot of the experiences of like watching these movies with people. It's always been kind of um, like a thing that I've enjoyed on my own, you know. So I, I, that's kind of my relationship with bad movies. And I don't really seek them out so much because I do I haven't really had that experience which is why when I found the like the horror community I was like oh my gosh you've heard of these movies that I've just been watching by myself and just like harboring all these thoughts about and it was just it was fantastic and I was watching best worst movie and I was just like oh I want to have that experience that sounds so much fun but yeah I just don't I don't love bad movies and like I watched um what's the clown one killer clowns from outer space killer clowns from outer space yeah okay that's fine um I get it but it's not and usually it's because I'm watching them by myself but man I watched this one last night and I was like holy shit this is insane and I love every second of it because it just like this was this is so bad it's good that I actually think is good you know that I really really enjoyed and that was even watching it by myself because it's just it's crazy. Like there's all these, like the dialogue and yeah. the, things, the moment that it won me over was when, after he says, you don't piss on hospitality. And then he started taking off his belt and I thought he was going to smack the kid. I know, and he talks about hunger pains. Yeah. I was like, yes. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like yeah. I've been moment. the girl dancing in the mirror with that. Like I had those tapes. And so it just like, it tapped into this time in my life too, where I was like, Oh my gosh, I had my hair looked like that. And it was so much fun. And then the witch came on screen. And I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, she's this movie my, is amazing. She's my favorite one in the whole damn thing. She is. And we're going to talk about it, but it, it was just, it, and then I watched best worst movie and it really, it was a really like great, framing of this movie that I think is terrible but there's so much heart to it when you hear the people talk about it you know which I really enjoyed so that was like I got a little emotional when I was watching that and it just was this really kind of good experience and knowing that we were going to talk about it and kind of putting my thoughts together about it was really 
I, I'm really excited to talk about it too. But yeah, so this is the rare so bad it's good movie that really works yeah. for me. Well, they are, you know, almost to some of your points, it's like, I don't like, and I think it's because perhaps I go to the movies less than I used to, or just being a little bit older, but I don't, I don't get the same rush, I think, from watching a bad movie anymore, unless I'm like at a a theater. Like my favorite horror experiences in theaters, it's, it's, it's when everybody is getting worked up in like a moment and it's almost like a, like a, a wave that's like, you know. Or like a storm that's building and mm-hmm. it's like building up to that sort of uh, that moment of catharsis. And, you know, and it's great. Yeah. Like for me, like last summer they showed Jaws um, at, at a movie theater and it was one where, you know, it was the kind of screening where everybody was encouraged to like be vocal and be and engage. And it's amazing when you watch those old movies and you're with a huge crowd and they're still reacting like they did uh you know in the first like when that movie first debuted like you're still screaming at the screen in that same way um that to me is i have more fun doing that uh than i do just watching and that's why i don't i feel like i don't even watch a lot of horror at home these days because for me it is such a communal experience i'm on the yeah and like in every year there's um at the music box there's this 24-hour horror film festival called uh, music box of horse and it's so much fun every year because that whole like the the crowd that attends these things like we all know that it's okay like we watch horror to scream and we want to scream with people and like so when something really gnarly is happening on screen it just you've got people just like losing their absolute shit and that makes it yeah, it's just it's like it's something i miss so much like about mm-hmm. the the exper- the theatrical experience yeah no, I was just going to say it's the number one thing that I miss of like, people have said, like, what would be the one thing you would do when if the pandemic was over? What would be the first thing you would do? And I'd be like, I want to go see a fucking horror movie or a campy bad you know, movie with a bunch of people in yeah. the audience because it's that exact same that catharsis, that oh, that collective experience yeah. is just it's my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, same. Yeah. For our other show, we just did uh, The Final Destination Part 4. Uh. And the two like main leads in that they go to like a movie after one of their friends dies, but they think they've like conquered the whole, like we've beaten death. Like the first thing the two women do is like, they go to a movie. And I remember like pre pandemic watching that being like, come on, that's ridiculous. The first thing you're going to do is go to a movie. And I got to tell you like the three things I'm going to do as soon as this is over, like, I will go to the local theater and see as many movies in one day as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Go to like a basement show would be the second. And the third, I think it's just go to a coffee shop to write for like four hours. Yeah. I miss that too. I'm going to spend like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to spend all day in the theater. Like the first (laughs) chance it is to be okay to do so. I'm going to go somewhere where there are no kids that need me to do anything for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to like lay, I'm going to be like the Babadook lady where she just eats ice cream on a bench for like an entire mm-hmm. day. Um, I think one of my favorite movie moments is at the end of Get Out, and I don't want to spoil it, but like when a door opens and everybody in the theater yes. was so amped up and then there was this big cheer and it's so oh, much yeah. fun. Oh my gosh. And and I I do miss that. Yeah, Get Out, I would actually count, like, among one of my better theatrical experiences. And I saw it, like, mm-hmm. during a preview screening because I was watching it. I was interviewing Jordan Peele for a publication, and so I got to go see it early. And, and I had n- so I had no preconception going into it, which is also really fun. And then, mm-hmm. man, and it was sometimes those, when you go to a preview crowd, they're usually pretty rowdy and loud. And it, sometimes mm-hmm. that's annoying. Uh, in this case, it certainly was not. Like, it was so fun. And, like, mm-hmm. and even, like, I remember even just mediocre horror movies, like... Uh, 
you know, I'm watching, I'm currently watching one right now. I'm like halfway through it. Uh, and it's just not as fun, you know, whereas if I, even when I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, uh, like, God, which one was it? Um, it was one of the sequels like came out like probably seven or eight years ago. <laughs> we went to that and like, that's such a boring, stupid movie, but you've still got people in the crowd being like, Trey songs, don't go around that corner. Yes. You know, I miss like... the shouting people <laughs> shouting random. Ish. I know. I know. Oh, God, it's always no. so fun. <laughs> I love that. It's like you catch the wave, you know, in mm-hmm. that communal experience, which is like what I love about singing in choirs. And it's like, there's a connective energy that you like, you feel like you're a part of that yeah. is really exciting. And I think horror in general, is just so can be so cathartic and so emotional and tense that it's like, it really takes you to those, those highs and lows. Yeah. Like I was going gonna say like speaking of mental health it's like the theatrical experience like the lack of it i feel like has been very negative for my mental health Mm -hmm. um and some like just concert i'm a big concert i go to concerts probably like twice a month and having not having live music for almost a year now is is really really hard for me and so yeah yeah, i guess like i don't know like it's so thinking of these things does make me happy but that's the thing is there, like I said earlier, there is almost this pang of sadness of like watching Best Worst Movie and seeing myself, you know, introducing the movie for a crowd and like everybody roaring and cheering. And it's like, like, when is that ever going to happen again? Mm-hmm. I miss that so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had the exact same reaction yeah. watching it and just thinking of that time in my life also. And it, that documentary really captures that like 2008 energy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I know. the outfits, mm-hmm. a lot of guys in like uh, blazers and t-shirts and like the, the little like... <laughs> military cap mm-hmm. hat look you know i was just like oh man i don't even know want to know how i would have what i would have been wearing if, if, if they had put yeah. the camera on me in that moment <laughs> and it reminded me a lot of the scream queen documentary too yeah it, it just like this reappraisal of a movie uh-huh. and like the people that are in it like discovering oh this thing that i think is terrible and that i'm a little bit ashamed of brings a lot of joy to a lot of people's lives which i think is is a really cool thing and there's an, another movie called the final girls where yeah. there's a woman who feels like she's in this stupid movie and it's like no people love you this the, you're not going to win an oscar but like this is people really love this and this makes people happy and gives them that communal experience and in the documentary you actually talk about it like being kind of like a church kind of experience yeah. you know <laughs> which i i was like okay i i get that because that's like there's a lot of research in the way that you structure church services to get, kind of get the hive mind and getting everybody thinking on the same direction which i mean I could have other thoughts about that, but it's like <laughs> you just kind of feel like you're part of the group, which is something that I was like, oh, I want more of that. And yeah. I feel like I've kind of got it now with podcasting, but it's just it's not quite the same. Yeah. You know? Well, so let's move into talking about some of our favorite parts, because whoo, I made a big, long list of <laughs> just things I wanted to make sure we talk about. But Laura. I want to talk about uh, Credence because yes. <laughs> uh, you have some notes about her. Just that I think Credence is one of the most insane characters ever <laughs> put on screen, brought to life by what I genuinely think. It's obviously a very campy performance, but is really a wonderful performance from this actress, Deborah Reed. I kind of looked into her on IMDb, and she hasn't been in much, though it's just for a little bit of King's Dominion. She did have a bit role in a 90s, in the 90s stand miniseries, which is like, what? Who does she play in it? It said something you... like, wife kissing husband or something like oh. that. Yeah, wife wife, <laughs> oh, wife boy. kissing soldier goodbye in uh, the episode uh. of The Plague. So, and it was un- wow. uncredited. So, you know, um, but that's amazing. So there's that. 
And honestly, though, she's so magnetic on screen and she's so insane. And I don't know if this is just in my head, because when I watched it with my friends over the Internet, they were all like, as soon as she came on screen, everyone was like, is this Lara? Is this a Lara role? And and I was like, fuck you all. But honestly, I get it. I I could watch her just be a gross and then sexy vegetarian corn witch all day. Um, She's just a delight. And you can tell she's having fun with it. And like every moment she's on screen, I'm just living for it. So Right. I mean, she really does seem to know the movie that she's in. Yes, like she does. She's, her performance is, I would say, like a cut above everybody else. Yeah. Yes, in mm-hmm. but at the same time, like she fully gets, like, okay, this is what I'm in. <laughs> yes. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give it like all the gusto. Yes. So right. you know, like I, I would say that like she is the when she's on screen, it does become a bit more fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, she, she for me is, uh, is such a delight because. Her performance is pitched so differently from everyone else's. And even though there's something a little bit, you know, there's obviously something very campy about what she's doing. What I love is that uh, it's like, like you got George Hardy and you've got Joshua and you've got Holly and the mother and they, none of them can deliver a line. Like they're a human being. Exactly. None of them (laughs) sound like people when they talk. And suddenly this woman enters and she doesn't sound like a person you talk to every day, but you're like, Oh, this is actually a performance, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas like when, when George Hardy talks, it's literally like, he's trying to remember his lines like as Mm -hmm. he's saying them, which is like, he doesn't, he's not an actor. And so, uh, but then you've got somebody who is acting so big, like, like she's, you know, on a middle school stage. And that's what I absolutely love about it. And it, and I feel like everyone I've watched it with, they always come out of that movie uh, saying, you know what? She actually wasn't bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she, yeah. she really, she knew exactly what movie she was in and she was pitched perfectly to it. But it's, it just stands out so much because nobody else in the movie is acting. Yes. Except for right. the, except for the, the store owner who's crazy, but. As he says in the documentary, he wasn't really acting because he <laughs> that was, was legitimately insane at that time of his life. He, he literally I says, know. I wanted to choke that kid. I thought I was going to kill <laughs> I him. I know. And I kept waiting for the documentary to pan back and show the kid that he's yeah, talking like, about. Do you realize you're talking to me, the one that, uh, that he kept saying that child, like he didn't make the connection. He didn't make the exactly. connection. Exactly. Yeah. And they told me oh. about that when I had breakfast with them because that, uh, that was when they were still filming scenes from it. And they told me about... Um, about how that guy when they spoke to him like he had no clue like they kept telling him this is who you acted with like like i played <laughs> joshua and he's like no no you you know and uh and he just didn't believe them and then also wow. the other story they told me that i thought was really interesting was when they interviewed margot prey who plays the mother who is just <sighs> what a odd like performance like she is there are some choices yeah she and she's yes. just her eyes are just daggers yeah you know? she's got and the, so, the mm-hmm. eyes she reminds yeah. me of relatives that i have let's put it that way <laughs> yeah. and uh but they told me about how the, when they went to her house and as you see in the documentary it's you know it's kind of like life stopped for her in 88 or whenever they filmed it and they said mm-hmm. that they didn't show it in the documentary because they i don't know they didn't want to like make her look too bad but they said mm-hmm. that uh, there was a calendar and the calendar hadn't been changed since oh, 1988. Really? Yeah. And like they said that was really sad. And they like, it they was were, just at too the much time, to, yeah. At the time, they were like, I don't know if we're going to show that though, because it's like really, you know, it might, you know. And yeah. so, uh, but they told me about that and I thought that was fascinating. I do think that was the most uncomfortable part of the documentary for me. And it did kind of make me feel like hearing her describe like the acting practice that she's doing and mm-hmm. how she's still like, I was like, Oh my yeah. goodness. But that's the kind of thing that you get from this movie where it's not people that are going on to like star in other movies. It's just 
That's it's such yeah, a the, the documentary has a lot of pathos for that reason. I think there's her and the guy that plays the shopkeeper like they both clearly have some mental health issues happening and mm-hmm. you know it's just like that that documentary takes you on such a roller coaster of emotion for going from like laughing at things to just being like oh no maybe I'm mm-hmm. the asshole uh-huh. and then like it's it's there's some, there's something in the in the vein of of these kind of movies and the characters that are attached to them that I find deeply sad but deeply uplifting but deeply just there's just such humans attached to this phenomenon that just happened to happen i don't, I don't know mm-hmm. what i'm saying yeah. here i just think it's it's very compelling yeah yeah well and hearing him talk about the first time he watched this the kid was on christmas morning yeah. and i just imagine like what that christmas was like like what the rest of the day was like for him and how how hard that must have been kind of broke my heart a little Mm -hmm. bit but I love that he kind of is reframing this and that it's it's kind of gosh like I read an article where he said he thought it was going to be like the next gremlins yeah Yeah. well because apparently I mean I think a lot of that was coming and you see that not to keep talking about the documentary it's just so fresh on my mind because I just watched it but the director it was this this big shot Italian director who probably brought that kind of energy to the production like I know what I'm doing Mm-hmm. This is going to mm-hmm. be a big thing, probably talking it up, because you can tell from the, the stuff that they filmed with him attending some of these screenings and stuff. This guy has not let go of the idea that he made a really good movie that should have been successful. And you can, it's just like I, I wrote in my notes, there needs to be specifically a German word for the feeling of a director or creator of a film that they thought was good being present for a screening where everyone is laughing at it. (laughs) I said, or I just... Goblin Schafreude. Right, exactly. Or like, I just say, it it makes me feel very wizzo inside. Like, it's just like, it's a very Mm. specific feeling because like, it reminds me of when I saw Danzig's movie at um, fucking Cinepocalypse. I was there too. You were were there too. I mean, that was one of the most, I mean, oh my God. I was just like writhing in like discomfort, but laughter, but like sadness, but but, uh, but I was just, couldn't stop laughing. Anyway, that's the it was feeling. like the office episode where they watched Threat Level Midnight and <laughs> yeah. Michael's yeah. like, why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, so um, speaking of the director, Claudio Fragasso, really fascinating guy. And a lot of the stuff's in the documentary, but I first read about it because I used to like linger around IMDb comment boards like mm-hmm. uh, when I when I was kind of getting into movies. And I remember it, it maybe wasn't on IMDb. It might have been on Reddit. Or no, not Reddit. I don't think Reddit was around then. No, it was on IMDb then. But some the the way the earliest stories about the the making of Troll Two came out, um, it wasn't like through the documentary really. It was through uh, some of the cast members, including the director. They would occasionally like when that move when the cult started to build, like on various message boards, they would kind of pop up and be like, "Hey, I was in Troll Two. If you want to ask me any questions about it." And that's like when I, I at least like that's how I learned about how the director uh, barely spoke English. And basically wouldn't rewrite his script. Uh, and they like offered alternatives. They're yes. just kind of like, this line doesn't really sound like something somebody who lives in, you know, uh, like uh, Montana or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> is going to say. So do you mind if we do that? And he'd be like, no, you do exactly as it's written. Yes. And um, and also that the film was meant to be a takedown of vegetarians. Yes, uh, I have. This is a, I, for later. I have a, 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 a Freudian analysis of the screen of the screenwriter based on that fact. But we'll wonderful. Save that. I won't. I won't say too much more then. But yeah, it's it's. But the thing. Um, but uh, as much as there's that aspect of it, what I do love is 
is uh, how like like now bad movies aren't really the same in a lot of ways because they're all CGI and CGI mm-hmm. just isn't bad in the same fun way. Totally. And when you watch Troll Two, what I do love about it is uh, is basically um, there's there's heart to it because there's so there's clearly so much work that was put into the effects and the effects are mm-hmm. all natural and but they're also so like fundamentally unscary. I mean, just the concept <laughs> of like green goo like coming down <laughs> from your head and eating like sandwiches with like green paste on them and everything like it's so it's so unscary and so off putting that I don't think it has the intended effect on any level. But at the same mm-hmm. time, there was there's this rinky dink sort of uh handmade quality to all of it and that always i think allows uh, gives a bad film heart that when you're watching a bad film that's bad because the cgi is garbage that's like a more cynical hate for a movie you know like uh, there was this trilogy of movies that came out in the mid-2000s about a killer scarecrow and it was scarecrow scarecrow 2 and then scarecrow gone wild and um (laughs) and we 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 love those movies were also part of our regular rotation but uh, they, it wasn't as fun because they, uh, like, they were just a lot of bad CGI, and it was so bad mm-hmm. that it was funny. But you didn't see any heart in the filmmaking. You were just making, you were like mad about it. You're just kind of like, this director sucks. There's a cynicism. There's yeah. a cynicism to these bad movies now. Like, I think of like Sharknado. Yes, exactly. Um, the asylum, which kind is of like thing, yeah. you, mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're getting into. Like they know they're bad movies. Like it, they go out of their way in terms of the casting, and it's almost like they're insulting their audience. Like how dare you know? Like yeah. who are you to have to like sit here and watch this? Where mm-hmm. you can take a I don't know like a a Jesus Christ vampire hunter. Yeah, for example, it's an example mm-hmm. of like a it's a terrible movie. But there is such a spirit to that movie yeah. that it is like makes it worth watching. Like mm-hmm. they're not trying to insult their audience at that point. It is just like the difference I think is like you have a bunch of goofballs trying to make a movie with mm-hmm. one another and have fun and be like, what can we get away with? Versus like what kind of schlub do you have to be to kind of sit there and watch a movie like this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's they are kind of like setting out to build a cult following from the get-go as opposed to like something like this where it's just like we're just going to make a movie and throw it out there and then it's almost like a, it's not almost it is a much more organic process yeah. to people discover as it. someone that yeah. wrote and helped produce a intentionally bad movie i can tell you that there is no way to, to set out to do to and, and come out with anything nearly as as good or fun as an earnestly made accidental bad movie it's just mm-hmm. there's a magic <laughs> in that that you can't you can't have. And I, I think that a lot of my favorite, I mean, um, bad movies have that same issue of feeling like they were written in a very specific way mm. and they did not allow their actors to deliver the lines in any other mm. way than as written. I'm thinking of like <laughs> Miami Connection, Samurai yeah. Cop, a lot of those that inspired the bad movie that I wrote that I used to be really obsessed with, these kind of bananas action movies that are just, they don't feel like how humans talk. And there's something you can't, <laughs> you can never you can never capture that as well as the people who just do it naturally. <laughs> right. Well, there's also this this trend now where it's like there's a lot of objectification and like really like edgy kind of sex scenes, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like I think about like Snakes on a Plane, which I actually had a, a fun experience watching that in the theater because they say some line about Tennessee and everybody like lost yeah. their minds. <laughs> um, and, and Samuel L. Jackson is pretty cool. But um, 
there's just so there's a really off-putting kind of edgy quality to like edgy in quotation marks like we know this is terrible so we're going to make it terrible and we're going to push as far as we possibly can but it's just real off-putting and you don't really find it here like I think the scene where she's bodybuilding (laughs) that (laughs) outfit that's about the skimpiest it ever really gets and even then I don't feel like really they're not really objectifying her I feel like everybody is kind of treated like a human being here like the 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 objectification happens in like weird ways that don't even feel like human enough for me to get offended by them like when she gets also when she you know dips her face into the stone and gets sexy and becomes the popcorn sexy witch Mm -hmm. like even that where she's like and they're like showing her boobs and stuff it's just too silly and like I just can't (laughs) it's never going to be an Italian movie unless it's a little like weirdly horny like horny in a weird Mm -hmm. way that's how you know it's Mm -hmm. an Italian movie the boobs where the mom is at being yeah I know I was like why do they have the unnecessary tits out yeah it's just but it didn't feel like it was on purpose either <laughs> it was just weird it was just the, the, the model they had you know, the <laughs> yeah, exactly this italian horror in general is weird it's definitely like one of my flying spots in a horror like i for one like i've never been able to make it more than 20 minutes through argento's uh Suspiria oh, really? without being like nope this isn't for me and but that includes like i've watched like, all the, of them. exactly <laughs> you know like the I remember like going to see it like a revival screening of it in 20 minutes getting up and just going nope (laughs) and then like walking out so like it's it's one of those areas where I'm like I just don't because it's so nonsensical to me so much of it so and I think this is like this is like a kid's giallo in some ways you know what I mean like it's like everything is green instead of red yeah exactly (laughs) right my first Fulci, you know? <laughs> it's sort of like Italian um, horror that's filtered through, like, Spielberg, right? Like, yes. they're trying to be Spielberg. Like, like he's trying to tell this kind of story about a plucky kid who overcomes this town full of ghouls that are a little bit yeah. silly, but they mm-hmm. can also get you. And, uh, mm-hmm. and there's something, I think, kind of, like... It doesn't work at all, obviously, but <laughs> that is part of it's the fa- it's this very American sensibility merging with this like mm-hmm. very Italian sensibility, totally. and there's a complete mm-hmm. disconnect. Like the puzzle pieces are not locking together, and right. that that I think is just what makes it so singular in so many ways. Right. Yeah, yeah. The opening is just straight up a ripoff of the Princess Bride. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be totally Princess Bride. Princess Bride. It's like it's, it's like, like what? It's a ghost know. grandpa? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I, I want. I wonder, how do they get Burr Ives to play the grandpa in this I know, movie? Because <laughs> he looks and sounds like Burr Ives. It's really weird. I don't know who Burr Ives is, but I will take your word on from, it. From Rudolph the Red-Nosed oh. Reindeer, and he's the snowman. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah, well, it's an archetype. Sometimes you just look and sound like Burr Ives. Um, yeah. You know, or just Santa. what happens. And, like, I think... Do, uh, I just also wanted to say before, you know, because I know you have the mirror dancing scene here, Jen, oh. I, 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 which is an amazing scene. I I do feel bad for the actress who was at that age, then saw herself doing that and was probably like deeply humiliated. But um, mm-hmm. I just, hold on, I put this in. Oh, yes. Uh, so. I just wanted to pose a challenge to our listeners, which is that if anyone can find and buy me 
a vintage Garfield Aries pajama dress. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Or an identical mm-hmm. replica of the one in the film. I will film myself doing Holly's mirror dance and speech <laughs> that she delivers into the mirror uh, right afterward. That is 100% something I will stick to. I've, I've tried for months now to find this dress. And there are there are similar Garfield Zodiac shirts out there. And But then every time I click on one that looks right, it's like, this eBay listing has been sold. And I'm like, no, I want that fucking dress. Somebody find it for me and I will film all of that. Okay, that's my thought on the mirror dancing scene. I think for me, I've seen this movie so many times that when that now I find like entirely different, smaller, weird, more esoteric things funny than I do sort of the big set pieces that you love when you first watch it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Laura, you just nailed one, which is like all the like stuff you don't see anymore, which is like brands and like uh, mascots and stuff like on clothing uh-huh. that kids are wearing. Like she's got the Garfield shirt. He's got like, um, uh, uh, what is it called? I think there's like a Ghostbusters thing in there and he's got a Spider-Man mm-hmm. pajamas, mm-hmm. I believe. And like all these like big brands that are on things always it's something that always makes me laugh for some weird reason just because it feels like i'm watching another era of film you know because yeah. uh, everything is so tightly controlled uh when it comes to like the the brands and corporations and everything and totally. copyright and uh yeah. and, and i i whenever I watch an older like more low budget movie where they didn't really care like they didn't realize they'd get sued for that or whatever it's always very fun for me when somebody's wearing like a Reebok shirt or something totally and, uh, <laughs> like in clearly a yeah. very casual way so yeah I think about that scene and then I think about um like when the trolls are chasing them through their house or trolls goblins <laughs> chasing them through the house <laughs> at the end of the movie like there's th- all those great scenes where they're like creeping down the hallway and then they like and then out of nowhere, just one of the trolls just jumps from off camera, like onto camera. It's like, how did you not see him? He was literally right there. And uh, and then at the end of that scene, when um, the trolls like corner them in the room and uh, one, then they all stop and the troll just says like, our master needs us. And they, go, <laughs> they just like disappear. Like, like that's the stuff that kills me after like having watched it 8,000 times are like these mm-hmm. little weird moments and just really weird little line deliveries. And I mean, pretty, but the thing is, like, the more you watch it, though, the more like every time George Hardy speaks, it's funny. Uh, he yes. just has a voice that is like so like warm and comforting, uh, but at the same time, like unreal. Like it just sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just such a big beefcake. And he's like, he's just yeah. such a, he's like, you know, he's just such a corn fed boy. I don't know. Like, he's mm-hmm. just he just cracks me up. Yeah. How do you I not know. like he's, him? <laughs> he's the absolute <laughs> highlight of this movie. And yeah, mm-hmm. like he looks like he's that's the thing is he's like kind of hot. And then he's got like his shirt unbuttoned <laughs> yeah. like at times like much further than it should yes. and uh and the the like those are the moments that always crack me up too is like hot george and uh i've been to several screenings now where he's been there and it's always fun like in those scenes like girls will like ooh him and everything and then like <laughs> watching his reaction he's like ah yeah. it's, it's so funny and so yeah it's like the, it's these weird little character ticks now or the way a character walks like those are the things that get me <laughs> now and mm-hmm. also just like every but also the the shop owner is still as funny to me now as he was back then just the way he's like he's like that's the devil's drink like the, and then oh yeah like it's such a it's such a strange like... performance he actually really creeped me out. I was like, yeah. like he looks very scary, <laughs> and it, probably because I was not prepared for that. Because he's he just like, kind of like out of the blue in the middle of How this movie. How could you be prepared? I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, there's no way to prepare. <laughs> no. The, the entrances oh. and exits of characters are very fun. Just the way that he appears, like, he walks into this empty shop, and then he just kind of pulls back a curtain, and it's like, hello. Yes! Right. talking shit about coffee? <laughs> yeah, like, what the I fuck? I love that. But the actor said to deal with his mental health issues, he was stoned out of his mind the entire time they were filming. He had no idea how any of the things he was saying connected to each other or what any of the scenes meant. So I'm just looking into his eyes, and I'm like, oh, yeah, man, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, and that's part of the stilted quality of it too. Is no no lines sound like a, a human being wrote them, and they're not delivered that way. And I think that's what kept me continually interested, is because I was just fascinated in how they were pronouncing all of these things. Like at the beginning, when the mom is saying, "And me as his daughter," yes, like, yes, you don't talk to your son like that. And then, okay, the other moment that I fucking loved was when she was asking him to sing the song. You know, her oh. favorite song, and it's fucking <laughs> row 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 your boat. So good. Joshua, oh sing, that, sing that song I like so much. You know the one. <laughs> row, row, row your boat. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that song was, it, you, I just always, like, that song you like is, is <laughs> row, row, row your boat. That, it's, like, funnier to me every time I watch it. I know. It's a banger. It uh, gets me. <laughs> so you can sing it in a round, you know? Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's happening. That was an uncomfortable <laughs> moment in the, the documentary, though, when... I was like, no, he's laughing because the scene is crazy. He's mm-hmm. not laughing at you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, ooh. Oh, man. Yeah. But, <sighs> uh, Laura, you mentioned this earlier, but another another moment that I absolutely love, because uh, you mentioned the sandwiches earlier, yeah. and the scene <laughs> when the cop has, like, a dirty paper bag, and he's <laughs> yeah. like, there's sandwiches in here. <laughs> I recommend for later. <laughs> you eat them. And it's, uh, sandwiches and I love for tonight. Eat them. <laughs> It'll go better for you. I mean, this, it's just like, what the fuck? And his, his name is... His name is Officer Freak, which I've always thought was <laughs> I forgot too. about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, shit. I... What cracked me up was when they go back to their apart, uh, condo or apartment and they're going to have that party for them. They get this slowly look, the dawning look of horror on their faces as it goes on and on and on. Like, everyone in the family, it looks like they know something is up, but then nothing is ever done. But they're all like... They all look just creeped and weirded out during yeah. it, mm-hmm. which I found like more and more amusing. <laughs> which, to be fair, I've been to parties like that where everyone sounds like that, and there's all kinds of Ooh. these homemade dishes where I'm like, I don't want to eat those. <laughs> and that, that's my growing horror of like, when can I leave? I, I really <laughs> I felt that scene. <laughs> yeah, but this movie really is sort of just a moment-to-moment movie. Like, it's mm-hmm. it, it's funny when you were talking earlier about how uh, the synopsis is is almost like hard to do for this movie because, and it is weird. To hear the plot spelled out because it makes no sense and uh and also it's like nobody's watching it for the plot you know like those are always the moments i think when you when you check out a little bit more and Mm -hmm. uh although it is fun sometimes i don't know like to just try to justify like what's really going on here like our b-rated episode my whole the whole bent of that show when we used to do it was i would use i would basically like uh, you know, learn shit I used in grad school to um to basically review movies from that don't deserve that kind of treatment, you know, totally. and so try to find like really elevated readings of of really bad movies. And Troll Two, we basically just talked about how it was about like you know um the dissolution of the nuclear family by uh, <laughs> left liberal vegetarians, you know, uh, that mm. are trying to consume your identity and tear apart your family unit. Which and, is, uh, I think, what the director or the, uh, the writer was kind of going for, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, and, like, 
we just but we got like we turned it into this whole conservative allegory and it was it was very funny to me but but yeah and uh but then you know you find like justifications for like with the popcorn and the the corn sex scene and everything and and all and the baloney like what does the baloney mean and why is stonehenge <laughs> mentioned like there's all these like completely not thought through ideas uh totally. that are mm-hmm. in the script and that's sort of it's it's fun to sort of try to connect the dots between them because that wasn't done for you in the movie and mm-hmm. uh like you know but clearly they just had like a popcorn maker on set or something and they're like eh, uh-huh. let's, let's do something with this you know we need we need some yeah. skin in the movie well you know we'll have her <laughs> go seduce uh him and just throw some popcorn on him it's uh so i don't know but yeah it is that kind of very drug mindset um that's couched mm-hmm. in in that sort of i don't know in this sort of like uh peppy almost like good humored attempt to do horror so yeah, and in between those moments, I feel like when you're watching it with a group of people, you kind of fo- like phase over the parts that are not the big moments. And I was watching it at home, and I was like, "What? What the hell?" And then it was just like a minute, a, a beat, and then another insane thing. And I, I wish that I had had somebody to like, like, what the fuck did we just watch? What is this popcorn thing? Because that popcorn scene, I absolutely loved that. <laughs> I was like. Holy shit, what is happening here? When they're both eating the corn yeah. on the cob. Because I read something about the corn on the cob scene, and I thought it was the scene where he was pissing on all the food. And so yeah. I had, I thought my I'd already had my corn on the cob moment. And then I got another one, and it was even more amazing than I could have possibly imagined. And I do. And I love that outfit. Man. Oh, yeah. I, no, I, I want that outfit. <laughs> I know. And I have like this obsession with witches. And man, that would be so much fun to that's be a gonna witch. Be, like I think her. that's going to be my next year's Halloween costume. Like, I'm going to think I really? should start putting that together now. I, I had that thought <laughs> earlier in, in 2020. And then it I would be. Yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> it would be fun to like start out as the like glamorous popcorn scene one and then like slowly yeah. go in and like put stuff on your teeth or like like mess yourself up a little bit yeah. and end with just like the insanity at the end. That's usually yeah. how my looks go from the beginning to the end of parties anyway. So, you know. Right, yeah. Or I could just drink all night yeah. and then I just look and act like her. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, Rand- uh, Randall, I did want to ask because they quoted you in the documentary at this one point and they used it as kind of a rhetorical question, like edit point. But I was wondering if you had said more, had more thoughts on it. They were, they were kind of talking about like, what is this phenomenon? Why do people like this movie? And you said something like, what is the subconscious thing getting under your skin? What is it that is making everyone like this movie so much? And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you had any further thoughts on that or if it was more just of a rhetorical, like there's got to be something we all love here. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was. It's. I think some of it. I probably did talk about. I. Uh, you know, as I know I'm a very Gabby. I'm a, a very Gabby person. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. But. Uh, but yeah, I think I was talking about the. Um, I think it's it. It touches on the stuff I was saying about CGI and like practical effects mm-hmm. and the general idea that there's a spirit. Like Mike, you said the word spirit, which I thought was a really smart word for this movie. Like there's a spirit to this movie that it it feels like the movies we grew up with. And I think that's the thing is it, mm-hmm. I don't I don't I, I honestly don't feel like younger audiences will be as drawn to this one. Like I think they'd probably be more drawn to the room uh, because mm-hmm. I think part of the appeal of Troll 2 is that it feels like like a Goonies, it like it like or a Gremlins, like it feels like in that mold of it, but it's the worst mm-hmm. possible version of that kind of movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. And I think that is part of the that subconscious appeal, which is that it resembles things that we loved as kids, and then it's this hilariously shitty version of that. And I think mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I think that to me is is really sort of the central appeal. That and the idea that I, I mean, and it can be very old man, you know, yells at cloud with this kind of thing. But movies, <laughs> like there's some, you know, I think the best the best kids movies these days are usually animated films, and so there's a lot like this. I feel like this the kid, stuff kids watch nowadays looks very different from the stuff I watched when I was a kid. And that's not to say the stuff I liked is better or anything. But you know, I watched the Polar Express with my with my nephew Jack, and it's the worst fucking movie ever. It's so bad, <laughs> and he's obsessed with it, and it's the greatest thing ever. And uh, you know, but then I just think about the stuff I loved when I was a kid, which was a lot of like Spielberg movies, stuff like The Goonies, and um, stuff that was a little bit twisted, and also had this sort of uh, labor of love, like handmade quality to all of it uh mm -hmm. like a textural quality to it and you know and i think that just that longing for that era i think also probably mm -hmm. speaks a little bit to what people love about about troll too because it, and also it's it is just kind of like excessively crazy uh like you mm -hmm. know i can there's a lot of like bad movies you can show people where it's it's not they're perhaps not ready for that kind of bad <laughs> yeah your your mind needs to be molded a little bit first yeah, yeah. like mm -hmm. Laura, I'm sure Brady you know the I. films of Neil Breen. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, like his stuff is so uh, just like uncomfortable and awkward and like it, it almost feels like dirty, like yeah. in just the sense like like you're seeing something without makeup on, you know, and it's mm -hmm. so there's like an ugly quality to it in a lot of ways. And I and like I tried showing that to somebody who wanted who like wasn't that familiar with bad movies. And there was a screening of, of a Neil Breen movie and I took them to it and they're just kind of like, ah, it's just like it just makes me uncomfortable. That's whereas like, a, I, yeah, like a 300. That's a 300 level class, whereas like yeah. some of the troll can be like a 101, you know? Yeah, it's like a 101 because <laughs> it, it's like a it's it's entertaining and like uh, even when it, it confuses you it um it's like adorably wacky and uh mm -hmm. like even when it's trying to be horror because also the goblins just look so silly you know the <laughs> yeah. big boogly eyes and everything mm -hmm. and so i think that helps too and uh and and i think people who don't watch horror also like it for that reason because it almost feels like this this parody of horror i think you know mm -hmm. totally. um yeah do you want to hear my Freudian takedown of the screenwriter? Yes, please. <laughs> sure. I just, I did this purely because I was like, well, we want to think about mental health a little bit here. Uh, and we've, yeah. we've had some critiques from possibly the same person over and over again saying that we don't do Freudian analysis enough in our films. And I think oh, this dovetails mm -hmm. nicely with what you were saying about doing heightened readings of like base material. Random. Yeah. So um, it's probably a lot of overlap here, but so there was screenwriter Rosella Drudy, who is the um, wife of the director uh, states in Best Worst Movie that she was pissed off at how many of her friends at the time were becoming vegetarians. There was probably a lot of influx of that sort of early Whole Foods um, kind of uh, li liberal culture happening, even <laughs> apparently even in Italy. Mm. So my, my hypothesis is that this anger was a manifestation of guilt over not becoming a vegetarian herself and feeling left behind out of the ti the, the cha these changing times around us. So she recognized a compassionate impulse and rather than self-reflecting, chose to project that feeling of animalistic monstrosity onto the vegetarians. This projection was so intense that it inspired a parable, a script where the vegetarians are nasty little goblins who will do exactly the opposite <laughs> of what a vegetarian does, turn living flesh into food, Throughout the scripts, the goblins. The script, the goblins are referred to as evil, savage animals. Is this not what the author subconsciously felt about herself? <laughs> Is it not? Is it no. not? Okay, I I'm love done. It. I'm done I now. Love it. <laughs> I feel. I feel like this was a time when there were a lot of people that were turning 
to vegetarianism, and I remember like this. What year is this? Late eighties. They filmed in eighty nine. Yeah. Late eighties. Released in ninety eighty nine. So, er, I remember like early nineties. Like a lot of my friends went vegetarian, and most of them were like real militant about it, mm-hmm. and kind of got in your face and were like, "How dare you eat that steak or that chicken?" and they would like shove pamphlets, especially going to like punk shows. Like it was yeah, the punk subculture part of it was is a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The veganism, like it was like when Earth Crisis was a thing. <laughs> so I could see like writing a movie where you're like, "Fuck your vegetarianism," you know, and and making them to the evils <laughs> no, at that I, point. I know. I just think it's kind of ironic that she chose to make them like eating people. But they're vegetarian. But they're, mm-hmm. So I just wanted right. to do a silly analysis of it in that in that vein. <laughs> well, they turn them into plants. They, first, I know, Laura. and it's like, right. and mm-hmm. at one point they're like, the meat will get tainted. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> you didn't think this through script wise, did no. you? Okay, <laughs> no, yeah. Anyway, that was my little um, uh, uh, my little thing there. I'm done now. <laughs> Well, and what I love is when the one dude just turns into a tree yeah, and he, he doesn't turn into food. And I'm not exactly sure why, because I think it's the same potion. I don't think the movie knows, but I loved his costume because he's just standing in a planter <laughs> and he's holding a plant. And like <laughs> as the witch is talking, it like pans away to him. It's like, oh, my God, it just, it just made me love this movie so much. And then I love the part where he's trying to pull him out. Through, with while he's standing in the planner and I kept like, expecting him to just like hurt his back and fall over because it's so hard to pull that thing it's just such a a sweet little moment that I thought was hilarious when she chainsaws him like he does the beavis and butthead laugh yes like yes it's not even that, that it hurts he's like Ugh. It's, <laughs> it's almost like it tickles like getting a chainsaw through like mm-hmm. i'm trying to imagine like franklin and texas chainsaw massacre giggling when he was getting a chainsaw <laughs> oh man well she fucked him gently with that chainsaw she so did. That and the cord on the cup <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah but Woo. you know Oh, well, are there any other moments that we want to make sure that we talk about and mention? There are so many, but I was like, I literally can't keep them all in my head because there's so many moments that I find amazing and hilarious, but I know. Well, and I have a hard time not just being like Chris Farley, like, hey, remember that time Mm -hmm. when, you know, (laughs) it's just so like, I imagine how much fun like a reading of this would be and I was watching the documentary and I saw people like acting it out it's like that's fun but it almost like you kind of lose a little bit of the magic too like you want Mm -hmm. kind of a simultaneous thing you know with the screen and then it's just it's just kind of one of those things that defies logic and Mm -hmm. I kept like the words cognitive dissonance kept coming up (laughs) and I almost put it down but it's like what I'm seeing is not there's something that's that's off it's like an alien quality where it's just it feels so staged but so close to things that I know that it's it's fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah it's one of those movies in a weird it it doesn't feel like it exists outside of the frames you know like it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like the world itself actually exists like and the best example i have for that is is uh when like when they actually have joshua like climb up on the table whip out his penis and pee <laughs> all over his family i know like, they imply <laughs> that that's what happened he says you don't piss on hospitality which means that it actually happened which causes mm-hmm. me to actually picture the scene where oh, he's yeah. like pissing in his mother's face. And that to me mm-hmm. is, is I think part of it where 
like it doesn't feel like that that actual consequence exists in the world of troll 2 and when you actually like imagine it happening and you know like i would have like the only thing that would have made it more perfect was if when farmer waits is taking joshua to his room and yelling at him afterwards if he literally had piss dripping from his head <laughs> well it's it's constantly subverting your expectations you're like oh what's gonna happen he's gonna like throw all the food out or something but no he pisses on it and then you think the dad's gonna like beat him with his belt yes nope, he's just tightening his belt like when i was watching right. it with all my friends who hadn't seen it before they kept just going wait oh this is what i thought was gonna happen but then this other thing happened ah! and like it's just like <laughs> right. i loved watching their brains break in real time like it was just and that this movie just has the power to do that even now even to in in the year of our lord 2020 you know it still had the power it's just going to be remain 2020 for me for the future <laughs> i know i'm still in it i don't care what happened until we get vaccine <laughs> like, right I, it's no, I know <laughs> i loved when you brought up jen that earlier the the belt moment because that to me is mm. my favorite part of watching it with uh somebody who's never seen it is watching them have the realization of like is he gonna like the belt moment is he about to whip his ass with the belt like like because that mm-hmm. would be very dark and it, because there's no other explanation oh wait well there's that but then there's also the question of like is he gonna piss on his son you know like when he starts <laughs> going at his belt and he's just like well, he's like you don't piss on hospitality and then, and then, uh, yeah that it's like literally i remember the first time i watched it that was like my initial impulse was like is he gonna piss on joshua which would have been so funny but then but then of course you watch other people and they have those various reactions like is he gonna piss or is he gonna whip him with the belt either way it's just really dark and then when he says he's tightening his belt so we won't feel hunger pangs. Like, it's what? just one and of your the... mother and sister will have to do the same yeah, thing. It's one of the weirdest. And the way he says hunger pangs is like <laughs> mm-hmm. so funny. And like, that's another thing that I absolutely love. So it's, uh, but it's just such a strange thing to do. Like, and nowhere in my life have I ever, you know, seen somebody like who they combated being hungry by tightening their belt. I, Maybe that is right. a thing. It does Maybe feel very Grandpa Simpson. Like, yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. Well, and to see them as grown-ups or I guess as the kid like in the documentary reenact that scene yeah. it felt really weird like he's like and he's like what are you gonna do to me daddy like as a grown-up like oh my god that's a dark scene that made me laugh so hard in the dark <laughs> oh yeah that's the that's the line too is he says what are you gonna do to me daddy and then what I think that's when he goes at the belt anyway. and you're just like oh he's gonna piss on him um. I know oh. but there's something about it that works and it's so insane that you don't think about how dark and yeah. weird this is yeah yeah Oh, oh, wow. What a movie. What? Now that's a movie. I know. <laughs> it certainly is a movie. <sighs> well, so this is when we would normally talk about any other mental health topics we see represented in this movie. We're not going to dig into them like we've done here, but we just like to mention things when we see them. And we've already talked a little bit about Don Packard, but I just did want to mention that he was actually a resident at... Um, what would the right word for that be, Mike? And it was like a, probably um, like a, like an intake facility or an inpatient mm, facility. Yeah, which I I find very odd that he got a day pass to do this. But I guess he was an actor because he says in the documentary that he had an agent and that mm. she actually got him this role. And then he got it because the guy didn't show up. But it just uh, that was a moment where I was like, okay, there there's some some darker things here afoot that yeah. We're just, I think I think it's it sort of dovetails with what I was saying earlier about um you know obviously like a fandom uh, a, a fandom 
can't really like cure your loneliness or your depression, but it can help you um, in a lot of ways. And I think whether that's like, you know, being a fan of something or actually being part of the thing that people are a fan of. And what I love about Don Packard is, is that he, you know, he's this guy who, you know, clearly has had a really tumultuous life and uh, has sort of, you know, inched his way into this kind of fame that he is very much game for. And what I love, but he's mm-hmm. obviously really like, reluctant because like i love when they talk about in the documentary how he was like sitting in the crowd at upright citizen Mm -hmm. brigade when they did the when they did the screening the very first screening of the movie and how he was in the audience and they had to tell him they're like dude get on stage and he like was and he like because he couldn't really accept he's like i'm not really part of this am i and Mm -hmm. because he's you know he barely remembers filming it but i think that that's really neat to suddenly like be thrust into a community and it clearly had a positive impact on his life and uh you know and so that's that's i think maybe the more positive thing whereas Margot's story is obviously different. Like she very much inches away from the idea of being associated with this in this context, mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. for her, she thinks it's a good movie uh, and doesn't, and similar to Claudio, but in a kind of a sadder way, uh, yeah. she mm-hmm. just, she doesn't understand why people would think this is a bad movie. Yeah. Well, it, th- mm-hmm. this is part of a phenomenon that I'm very interested in is these sort of non-actors appearing in things that either accidentally get attention or intentionally get attention because of their innate weirdness. And the thing that I'm thinking of specifically is um, Tim and Eric. Like, you know, if you watch, I'm a huge, huge, huge Tim and Eric fan. And in fact, worked with David Liebehart, who is one of the cast of Weirdos in the Tim and Eric Awesome Show um, in the, you know, the film that I worked on. And just especially get like getting to interact with him and meet him. And you start to realize a lot of the big sort of, and the way that Tim and Eric went about it is they found a lot of people from various cable access television programs and street performers to be part of Tim and Eric awesome show. And so you're dealing with a lot of people who have, who just incidentally have mental health issues going on that are, are very evident when you actually start talking to them or interviewing them. And it, 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 the, the question in my mind is, is this exploitative or is it, po- is a, is it a positive thing in their life? And mm. with Liebehart, at least for, just from talking to him, he was so f- fucking thrilled to be working on this project with us. He was, I mean, we, you know, and we obviously we paid him like it wasn't, we weren't attempting to exploit him, but I felt weird about it afterwards. And I was like, am I engaging in exploitation of, you know, and so this is just, I'm just opening a huge can of worms here, but it's, it's a phenomenon mm. that I find find very interesting but i will say from my experience with him he was he want he it was his dream to be an actor and he loves being in front of a camera and i think that's the case for i mean he had a cable long long running cable access show and tim and eric just kind of swept him up you know into this phenomenon that happened to be a very successful comedy show so and i, and I just think like i don't know if it was you know they they it was happening to a much lesser degree in this movie, but not intentionally because the directors uh-huh. were like, "We're making a good movie," but uh, but what well what resonates with people or what people like about it is its innate weirdness, and a lot of that comes from the performances you're getting from Margot and, fr- and from Don Packard, and they're 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 just, they have a weird energy, but it's very compelling to watch. And so that's the question in my mind: is is it exploitative or is it is it a positive? you know impact in people's lives and um i don't have an answer to that question and i don't know it's just something i've spent a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. because i'm fucking weird mm-hmm. so <laughs> yep <laughs> no and i think there's like the, the when it's kind of a flash in the pan kind of thing and something catches it, it's just usually not sustainable and i think when i start to feel like 
uncomfortable empathy is when I think people think, oh, this is my big break and yeah. now I'm fantastic. And it's like they don't understand what the thing is. Like I think about William Hung a lot and I think that's kind of a maybe a dumb connection. But like he, he, that that was a, a moment that wasn't the start of a career. Right. There's a there's a documentary that played the Boston Underground Film Festival, like I think six or seven years ago now, and I'm struggling to think of the name of it. Similar to what you were saying, Laura, like it was about it followed around like this local person who kind of did all these like stunts and crazy behavior. And he thought he was on his way to stardom and it felt very exploitative. Like I remember like watching it in the audience and like feeling really uncomfortable. Like there was a lot of laughter that seemed like it was directed at the person as opposed to mm -hmm. being directed. Mm -hmm. Instead of yeah, an in on the joke. Well, that's thing. kind of like uh, American movie, yeah. the chris mm. smith film about mark yeah. borchardt although the thing is and that's the thing is it it does exist some sometimes in the eye of the beholder or you know the individual suspect mm -hmm. or uh uh or you know subject mm -hmm. and i think with mark borchardt like he loved that attention yeah. you know even though a lot of it was people laughing at him and it is filmed in the way to frame him as somebody that you yeah. can laugh at and mm -hmm. that is something that i think is a fascinating topic and uh and something that it's kind of funny uh the director todd salons who i really love yes he did a movie called storytelling mm -hmm. and the second half of it explores it kind of touches on that question a little bit about when the documentarian this the the way that it's sort of inevitable that you're going to be framing mm -hmm your subject is hero or joker, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and sort of like that delicate right. balance. And mm -hmm. I do think, and I think the thing that's a little bit different about troll too, is that, you know, the director, like you, I think you mentioned this, Jen, like he wanted to make a good movie and he thought she mm -hmm. was delivering a good performance. And they, uh, it was more so the crowd, like the audience, the people who picked up the movie, who sort of decided, uh, that, you know, her performance was one to be mm -hmm. laughed at. And, you know, and it mm -hmm. is really weird. A lot of it has to do with the dialogue, but I think it's hard because you never want something that you took seriously to be something that people are joking about. And I think yeah. that is is really hard for people. And I think, you know, the ones who, you know, some people can kind of set aside that that sense of, you know, dissonance and reap what they can mm -hmm. from the newfound popularity and mm -hmm. other people i think cling to the idea that no what i did was good and you guys are wrong yeah. and and that's and so yeah it is and i think that when you're dealing with a bad movie um you know sometimes like like tommy Wiseau is an example that he was making a movie that he thought was good and then he's somebody who kind of said okay this is the reputation it has i'm gonna lean into this call mm -hmm. you know if they and think now it's bad he says, yeah now he says oh i meant for it to be funny no. and yeah it's mm -hmm. a yeah and he just rode yeah. he rode that wave because that's what he wanted to do, and I think that was true for most people in Troll Two. Whereas Margot is sort of the the exception because for her, you know, she doesn't you you can tell she clearly doesn't want to be associated with um, a celebration of it being bad because she feels like she's being laughed yeah. at, and mm -hmm. in some yeah. you know, and I think a lot of those guys, a lot of the people in that movie are being laughed at, but it does depend on the perspective of the person. And so George Hardy, yeah. I think, is somebody who's well-adjusted right. enough that he's able to say, yeah, I am a bad actor. Right. <laughs> like, la laugh at me, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. But that's not yeah. easy, especially for somebody who, you know, Margot clearly wanted to be an actor and yes. it didn't pan out for her. And yeah. so I like that they kind of shown a light on that. But it is true, Jen, I think you mentioned, by showing them kind of reenacting the scenes, are they exploiting her a little bit? Because the humor in that scene does come from the fact that it is bad and the fact yeah. that, you know, she doesn't really get why it's bad. And um, mm -hmm. that's funny on first blush, but, you know, it, it is something that I've thought a lot about. Too, well, for so. someone like a George yeah. Hardy, he's a bad actor, but a very good dentist. And 
Yeah. Something like something like doing Troll Two would be like you know like oh in college I had my like nipple ring phase you know what I mean that's like yeah. I, it would be mm-hmm. one of those things you look back at as a when you're older and kind of laugh about it because you know you George Hardy has this ability to go well, look at this career that I made like you know as an actor I make a terrific dentist and he can kind of laugh and it's mm-hmm. like one of those stories that. You know, he can tell it like dinner parties or tell friends or if he wants to embarrass his kids, he can like throw it on during like a sleepover or something over in his friends. Or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it becomes something like that. And to Jen's point where you were saying how some persons think they're going to go on and have this massive career, like as much as we love slasher movies, there are very few Jamie Lee Curtises in slasher Mm -hmm. movies and there are a lot more adrian kings like those you know went on to have like an okay career for a while but it never really turned out for her probably the way that she wanted to like she wasn't able to parlay her um fame from the first friday the 13th movie into something where she's still starring in movies 40 years later but what horror has Mm -hmm. afforded a lot of persons the ability to do is because there's such a love for the genre and such a love for, like, weirdo cinema. Like, there are midnight screenings, revival screenings, like, film fests that have, like, retrospectives. Like, at Telluride Horror, two years ago, we did um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, where we brought in, like, the crew from that movie and, like, did, like, a a huge Q&A and a celebration of that movie. There are... In better times, there are conventions that pop up everywhere where someone can go and, like, make 20 bucks an autograph, 50 bucks an autograph for, Mm -hmm. you know, being, like, victim number three in Terror Train. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So they have, Mm -hmm. like... That would be an aspiration for me to be getting people asking for my autograph. (laughs) They can go... Died on screen. They can go up on a panel and talk about their experience making something, like... And I think, like, sometimes we forget as fans that, like, this is just a job for them so like we might get mm-hmm. deep in the woods and some of the questions we ask or the things that we know where they're like i don't know man like i just came out of my trailer i read my lines it was like a day's worth of work for me and mm-hmm. you know it was 40 something mm-hmm. years ago but mm-hmm. they get this like if not career then like a really nice little side hustle out of it and they get kind of that love or that adulation they didn't necessarily get from their work um, it didn't parlay into more work in movies, but it gave them something that's going to last for a very long time and probably mean a lot to them. You don't get that in any other genre. I think maybe one day there'll be like a Hallmark yeah. Christmas movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, think right. I wouldn't. You know, I think that will be the thing that like maybe mirrors horror in terms of like conventions and notoriety but there's not like people love action movies make more money than horror movies typically but there's not like an action movie convention circuit there's not like a romantic comedy convention circuit i mean my wife and i are looking at supernatural con next year and it's like (laughs) do i is there a way that i can like swing it so i can take her to that for her birthday Mm -hmm. you know like because like if you worked on that show you will probably never have to pick up like a check in a bar again at one of these things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's that's yeah. not a bad life. No, I love yeah. it. We're seeing these people like what thirty years after this too. So I imagine most of them probably felt the same way that Margot feels now a couple of years after. And like when they're interviewing Holly, like you can see kind of feel that embarrassment. 
And I was just thinking that that goes to like trusting the director. And when you're performing in a movie, like you have to really trust that the director is not going to make you look like an idiot and that you're going to go like do this really weird dance in a mirror and that it's going to work in the movie because you're trusting your image with somebody who has a vision. And I think, and I think these are, like it reminds me when I was a brand new teacher and I didn't know my principal was terrible because I'd never worked with another principal. And like if you're like fresh off the street and you'd never even been to an audition before, you don't know that and you don't have any agent that's kind of looking out for you and saying, hey, this dance, I think, I don't know if it's going to go the way you think it's going to go, you know, and I just... I can understand feeling a little bit betrayed yeah. by that. Like I was or embarrassed that you did put your trust in someone who this is how it turned out. And I, I do wonder how long it took the kid with his name is Michael. Stevenson, Michael Stevenson. Is that yeah. right? Yep. Sweet. Um, I wonder how long it took him to get to this point where he was like, yeah. where this was something he wanted to embrace, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I think along the same lines, uh, Jen, the trouble with I think the struggle of doing art, whether you're an actor, you're a painter, you're a writer, anything is once you once whatever you've done has been unleashed upon the world, it is no longer yours and people can do with mm -hmm. it whatever they want and they can read it however they want and frame it however they want. And that's really, I think, the terror of putting anything out into the world is because there is the potential for that to happen. Yes. And, yeah. And <laughs> so a, I think that's thing. something that bad movie culture I reckons with in a lot of ways is like and why I think people become very fierce in their love for bad movies because what they're emphasizing is is i'm not we're not making fun of it we're having fun with it you know and yeah um, and that's how i try to look at it you know is like when yeah. if you meet somebody who is in one of these movies you don't say you were terrible and it's so funny you know you say it more like you made a thing that brings more joy to people than most yeah. movies come out that do and yeah. i think uh but at the same time it can be hard like sometimes that line is really blurry and sometimes you're sitting there and you are laughing at someone and not with them you know and yeah. uh but uh, yeah so I think that dynamic is very interesting and especially as it speaks to mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of Supernatural, I think that's something that Supernatural actually does very well. And my favorite episode of that entire series is fan fiction, which is the musical episode and what it's about. And they actually have a couple of episodes like this where they really kind of reckon with the fans reaction and they like talk about how the shippers and like this is like the the queer reading of this and that's not what we intended but this is and I think they they present that in a way that says okay this is yours now this is what we intended but here's what it can mean to you and that's okay which mm -hmm. I I really appreciate and when you're on for that long yeah. you have to be able to mm -hmm. do that you it's like you have to be able to laugh at yourself you know and I think like George went back to something else in his life that made him feel good and I think that's why he can kind of take a step back and say yeah this is pretty funny mm -hmm. instead of being like devastated by it so it's all just about yeah. how much of your own ego you invest into something mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that can be a really uh, difficult skill in life to gain I know for me personally it's something I really struggle with is to not be so full of ego not in a way that I'm like, like I'm self-centered but just in a way of like every time I tweet something if it doesn't get at least a handful of mm. likes I'm like I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> I know. you know so it's it's just about you know you got and you got to knew they hated me <laughs> right and you got I think that's a lot of why I am the way I am I figured out how to laugh at myself because I had to as a defense mm -hmm. mechanism you know, for yeah, my incredibly sensitive baby ass uh, anyway <laughs> Oh, well, Laura, do you want to talk about Holly 
hitting her boyfriend all the time. <laughs> I just, I, I literally it. noted it as the only other mental health issue. I was like, does Hallie constantly hitting her boyfriend count as abuse? <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I think it just struck, and, it just struck me, <laughs> wink, wink, Maura, on this viewing uh, that she hits him a lot. <laughs> I was just like, I really, I think it only happens twice, but it's, it's still, it's just like Jesus. Like, oh, okay, ca- carry on. What were you going to say? <laughs> Well, and to see his acting throughout the rest of the movie, like, I think she really hit him at least the first time because his reaction is, like, very painful. <laughs> I think I wrote in my notes, fuck, I think she actually punched him. <laughs> so, yeah, but I do think that counts. And and I the red flag I also picked up from that is that she is making him choose between his friends and his relationship. Yeah, it's which, a bit much. Like, yeah, but that's something we always joke about, too, which is just the concept of, like, that's not reasonable. Like, you, you can't <laughs> right, say exactly. you are not allowed to have friends. You must come right. with my family. And George Hardy's like that, too, where he's just like, like, he's so offended. He's like, he's choosing his friends over you. Like, that's a really toxic <laughs> thing to pass down to your kid, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You want him to have friends. And it's not like they established that these were, like, rebel without a cause, like, teenage, like, you know, leather jacket wearing switchblade. Right. They're clearly yeah. total harmless dweebs. Yeah. So. It's just his dweeby friends. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh well now it's time for an uplifting moment and this is where we share grounding or coping (laughs) i wrote comping strategies (laughs) this is where we share grounding or coping strategies that's working for us right now or we share some current self-care that we're enjoying and grounding and coping techniques are little tips, tricks, mantras, um, what have yous that help us get through tough days, weeks, moments, years, quarantines, pandemics, just the things that help us get by. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or helps us when we feel bad. And these are just suggestions. We know that what works for us won't necessarily work for you. But um, I think I like to share these things because I get new ideas and I think it normalizes the importance of taking care of ourselves and really kind of looking out for that, which I think most of us could probably stand to do more of. And I can start. (laughs) Um, I have recently discovered uh, the movie and book Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is I am obsessed with this and I don't know what it is about it. Like it's so like. Languid is the word that keeps coming to mind, and I don't even know if that's a real word, but like it's so um the pacing is is very smooth and like dreamy, and th- they're all speaking in Australian accents, mm-hmm. which I find very soothing and like ASMRy and I don't know if that's a word either, but I'm gonna go with it. And then I started listening to the audiobook and it's just it's so like dreamy that I just love it and it's it's bizarre and unique and it reminded me of listening to um the haunting of hill house in the way that it's just kind of very like fluid prose that are read in a very like soothing kind of way it's not as scary i don't think as um the haunting of hill house but i've been super into it and it's 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 gotten me through some um some stressful weeks i also was really obsessed with bridgerton for a couple of days <laughs> which, was, which i called uh, the the fancy british sex show um so that was fun yeah the faculty the faculty of horror have an excellent episode on yes. picnic pack uh picnic of hanging rock too if you the, haven't listened already it's really that's good. where i found out about it i was like oh, oh okay. yeah i gotta oh. listen i gotta watch this yeah uh, I'm pretty like knee deep with my therapist right now and just uh, I'm sort of trying to rewire my brain um, in terms of how I approach work and trying to separate work 
from work is sort of the capital W work, like all the things I do for work, because they do a lot of different things. And I think trying to, you know, really try to separate them from my personal life, which has become increasingly hard during the pandemic. Um, now that I, you know, I work entirely from home and um, it's basically a lot of like soul searching with my therapist, but I'm basically just trying to reframe my anxiety, like, uh, and not see every moment as an opportunity to be working rather than, mm. you know, just relaxing or trying to live my life. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's a pretty big shift. Um, but I think it's sort of something that I'm taking very seriously right now because it's like, you know, you spend your whole life just kind of thinking that uh, behaviors that are really bad for you are just normal or necessary. And, uh, and I'm, I'm finally starting to recognize that my relationship with work and, uh, and even writing to some degree is, is, is not like sustainable and healthy. And mm -hmm. that's, but, you know, I spent so much of my life thinking that was what I was striving towards and uh and then no. it's like i can't i can't keep this up and that's actually not normal so uh mm -hmm. so that's sort of where i'm at right now yeah yeah i think mm. nobody goes to their grave saying i wish i put more hours in at the office yep at exactly. the end of the day and i try to remember that similar boat like i get obsessed with work and it just becomes a bit too much um i'm coming off like that we're recording this the last day of like an 11 day break for us like the with um the school counseling gig we've been out for christmas break and i'm making a real effort this year when there is a break for school to also take a break as a therapist like i've just told my clients like i'm off the next 11 days um if there are long weekends i'm taking those days off rather than go into the office so i think that's been like a really healthy thing for me to do to kind of recharge the batteries a bit here heading into the new year. Um, what I've been doing like prior to becoming a therapist, like I spent 20 years in consumer electronics, 10 of them as a rep that worked with small business owners. Like if you wanted to put together like a nice little like audio video or package, you would call one of my guys rather than go to Amazon or Best Buy. And I would design systems for the ground up and one of the things i always loved was like lighting control like i would teach dealers like literally teach them classes on how to sell it how to program it um and then i would you know actually make money going out there and like doing the programming for them so i've always up until we had this house for the past 10 years i've had like lighting systems where like the touch of a button i could make like certain things happen and just kind of like set the mood in the room and i would literally have like relaxation scene watch movie scene reading scene um and just have lights at different levels and i forgot how much that really having the right lighting in a room really affects my mood and helps me relax so what's incredible like being out of this industry for like five or six years now um how much it's changed and how much easier it is and how much anybody can do it so i've spent like some money like redoing my Lutron system and like programming lighting and just mm. having like a space where I can go hit a button and relax. And like, that is like, it's so much nicer than either sitting in the complete dark and watching a movie or having this really harsh lighting on. So I've found like my mood is so much better or calmer. I should say just by having like that right kind of 
meditation setting, I would say. Um, that's been really helpful over the past 11 days, as well as just like, again, shutting it down for a week and a half has been really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to teach with the lights off in my classroom, and yeah. I had windows that would get a lot of natural light so we could still see everything, mm-hmm. and I had a projector. But it was amazing the difference it made. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no one the, like the mood of the class. Yeah. You know? No one should sit under fluorescent lights Yeah, seriously. 11 hours a day. Right. Like, well, that's just not good. One of the major right. things I don't miss about working in an office is dealing with communal mm-hmm. fluorescent lighting. Uh, but now I know who to ask when I one day yeah. if I if I ever can afford a, my own home and can customize the lighting in a meaningful way I'm going to bother you Mike because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I will love to help you out. And what's really amazing is how inexpensive it is. Like just to do like bulbs at this point that work off of Bluetooth and not yes. even have to do anything crazy. I know when, back in my school office I'm going to just put in a few lamps and some like dimmable bulbs and hopefully never turn on like the overhead lights again. Mm-hmm. because it'll just feel so much nicer in there totally yeah and i'll only say that yeah i've also been on an, about an 11 day break which is i looked back into my my time off calendar at work and thought back over the last few years and i have not had this amount of consecutive time off without some kind of project lined up in ever like ever since i've wow. fucking started working after college really um yeah, and I'm I'm like I'm pretty confident that that's actually true. <laughs> like, you know, so I was like, "Well, what the hell am I going to do with all this unstructured time?" And so I kind of let myself be pretty lazy, which was weird. It was just weird. And like I was trying mm-hmm. to fight the urge to feel shitty about myself because of it. And I played a lot of uh, my friend get, got a PS5, so he basically gave me his PS4, so I downloaded mm-hmm. this game I've wanted to play for a long time, which is kind of lame. It's Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh yeah. It's but great. I, wow. Yeah, but it's I've really been enjoying playing it and um I also did have a few conversations with two different people who, you know, basically gave me some career advice. And, I've, you know, I feel like I had a little bit of a realizing in my head what I want to do kind of thing. Like, I just had like, I don't want to say that I had like a revelation, but I had some really good conversations and I feel a little more like I know what my next steps are. So, and that's been something that's been getting me really, really down a lot lately, um, especially this year as I've been forced to <laughs> self-reflect really intensely with all this time, you know, alone. Um, so I feel good about that. And now I just got to go back to work tomorrow and continue trying to figure out how to take no. care of myself in the interim. So mm-hmm. Well, if you keeps... ever need uh, gaming recommendations, Lara, I will yeah. be happy to can share I, them. Can I make Please. one right now? Uh, sure. If, if you can get it for 20 bucks, the Spider-Man Game of the Year edition. Oh. It is incredible. Is that on PS4? Or? It's on the. It's an exclusive PS4. Get mm. the Game of the Year because you get all the bonus. I think it's 20 bucks at this point. Um, it's like Grand Theft Auto, except you're Spider-Man. Nice. So it's like this open world game. And then I'm playing the sequel right now with Miles Morales in it. Nice. Mm. Oh, God. It's like I pl- I'm trying not to beat it all in one day because it's just so much <laughs> fun to play it. So, But I would say that's probably the best game I've ever played, period. Oh, wow. So. Yeah, games awesome. games for me have always been a, a good mental health thing. Uh, totally. I, I loved them as a kid when it was, you know, I wasn't thinking about mental health and I probably played mm-hmm. too many video games. And uh, but I, I kind of stopped playing through college and a lot of my 20s and stuff. And then and then several years ago, my buddy, I had a PS3 
three because mm-hmm. I uh, just wanted to watch Netflix on it. That was like the reason I had it because that was still a novel <laughs> concept. And um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and my buddy sent me a game through the mail because he's like, he's like, do you ever play games on it? I'm like, nah, not really. And he's like, play this one. And he literally mailed me a physical copy of this game and I put it in at like 8 p.m. on a Friday night and then suddenly the sun was coming up and it was like, it was, mm-hmm. it was an experience I hadn't had since I was a kid. And it ended up being a really positive one because uh it's sometimes it's hard for me to sit and watch a movie or a tv show i feel lazy you know and Mm -hmm. and while i try to tell myself not to feel that way because it's not lazy to watch a good movie or something but um but video games for me would occupy a certain part of my brain that wouldn't spin like that they wouldn't shame me it's it was like engaging Mm -hmm. with me on a certain level that i could allow myself to sit and kind of and i'd say nothing i don't really get immersed in anything as much as i do in video games like that's when i'll i'll lose track of time and my thoughts will go to the back of my head and i'll just kind of find myself in this sort of uh hypnotic almost um this trance state while i just like grind Mm -hmm. you know and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah so that's i yeah i I think gaming is always is honestly a very good like approach to uh, calming down an anxious mind. Yeah, yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. Because even when I watch movies and TVs and stuff, I have to be playing a game on my phone or knitting. Those yep. are my two things that mm-hmm. I do yeah. now. And it's like, I literally can't, like, I can't just sit and watch. That's why another reason to miss movie theaters is it forces you to do that. But but it's different because yeah. it's this immersive environment. So yeah. just all that to say, same, big same. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and we want to know what you think. Um, we would love for this to be a conversation, and we want to hear your thoughts on Troll 2, Comfort Horror. Do you like games? Or, like me, are you afraid of drowning in all of them? Um, <laughs> what's your current self-care? Anything else that's on your mind? I do still get a lot of anxiety with Mario. Um, <laughs> But you can share with us by following us on socials at Psycho A Pod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated group filled with really amazing, supportive, kind, and wonderful people. And we post discussion threads and questions of the day, and we want it to be a safe space for us to talk about some of the more sensitive stuff that we talk about. Today was kind of a fun episode, but... We're in the middle of Depression Month, and those are maybe not the most fun episodes, although I think that they are necessary conversations. But so that can be a place where we can kind of unpack some things in a kind of closed, private place. And I took a little bit of a mental health break from Facebook over the break, and I'm I'm hoping that when this drops, I'm Future Gen is still, like, kicking and kind of back in the Facebook game. Um, but thank you for the the grace to kind of just step away for a minute. You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share with us privately. And we would love for you to leave us a rate and review. It, and I know I feel like all podcasts say it, but it is really true that it helps people find the podcast and something like an algorithm or something. And, and it <laughs> makes us feel good, too. So, you know, if you want to do that, that would be fantastic. And our homework question for the day is, what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you on vacation? <laughs> so we want to hear your weird house swap stories. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it doesn't involve goblins or trolls, but... Um. Yeah. Oh, I meant to say I love that. Like the movie is called Troll Two, and then in the first ten <laughs> seconds they're talking about goblins. I know. Yeah. So good. Hey, gotta That's be part amazing, of that hot yeah. trolls franchise. Yeah, so. you know, you gotta exactly. capitalize on Troll One. You got exactly. You got to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we are. Oh, so what's next for us? We are continuing our jam January. We are continuing our January theme of depression. 
Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And last week we covered the Babadook and we're following it with Lake Mungo, which I have not seen, but I heard it is very scary. It's wonderful. I need to rewatch that one. It's a real, it's a subtle, like slow burn kind of scary. So yeah, but it, but it is, the more you think about it, the more disturbing it gets. So it's just one Mm. of those, it's one of those. It It might be perfect for us. It is a heartbreaking movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's got a lot sounds of intense like, Sounds yeah. like a gin movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us along with other shows like The Losers Club and Halloweenies and going there with Dr. Mike by going to consequenceofsound.com. There's also lots of writing and reviews about pop culture, music, TV, movies, Cobra Kai, lots of fun stuff there. Um, and Randall, where can we find you online and what do you have coming up? You can find me on Twitter at Randall Colburn, just my full name, no spaces or anything. Um, I'm a I'm a culture editor at the AV Club, so you can find my writing there. I'm I do a little bit of everything there, so uh, including I'm <laughs> re- currently well, I wrote a re- pre-air review of the Stand, and I also of the CBS All Access series, and uh, and I also did an interview with the showrunner, and I've got a few things coming up at AV Club. I'm going to be I believe I'm going to be interviewing Owen Teague, who plays who. Uh, <gasps> who plays um, uh, Harold Lauder. And we're also interviewing him on the podcast, The Losers Club as well. Uh, There'll be two separate interviews though. And so, um, (laughs) and yeah, and I'm also going to be doing sort of a a post-mortem on the stand at AV Club that I'm really excited about. I'm gearing up for that now. And, uh, but yeah, you can also find me at The Losers Club podcast with Laura and Jen. And we've got um, our some episodes on Desperation and the Regulators coming up, which are two books that were released simultaneously, and we're going to be doing some simultaneous coverage about it. Very excited about that. And uh, mm-hmm. otherwise, I you can I don't know if you'll be able. We never had a proper YouTube page uh, for B Rated, my old movie review show, because it was very mm-hmm. early days of YouTube. But I'll see if I can find my Troll Two episode and uh, send it to you guys. Maybe you can post with the episode. Yeah, I know it's please. Still, oh yeah, we can link it. I know it's still on YouTube uh, somewhere, and our few of ours still are. A couple got taken down for copyright reasons, even though they gave us permission. Mm. I swear they did. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, just to get a look at, you know, it was a long, long time ago and um, we were it was a very charming little show, I think. So, um, yeah. Aww. So that's where you can find. Me. Well, Mike, where can we find you? So you can find me over on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can hear more of me over at the pod and the pendulum podcast where we cover horror movie franchises. We are just we have just wrapped up the final destination series and we're moving on to sinister we will be uh doing a month on french extreme french horror in february Eek. and then the evil and then the <laughs> evil know. dead series i know we're going from depression month to like extreme like to extreme french horror so right, i am just up. a glutton i'm just a glutton <laughs> But then we are going to be doing the Evil Dead series. So that show has been going great. Like Lindsay Travis has joined on as a co-host and she's amazing and just brings this like tremendous energy to the show. And it's like so smart and wonderful. And uh, I'm just really excited about the stuff that we're doing there. So find us over at Pod and Pendulum wherever you get your podcast. Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Uh, we just passed 100 episodes and that kind of blows Yay. my mind that we've done that um so i'm really proud of that show and i'm available to guest on any show that's one of the things i want to do more of this year is like guest on more shows and 
do some more writing this year, like kind of get back mm-hmm. into that. So that are the, those are the two goals that I have in terms of horror coverage. Laura, where can we find you? You can find me, Laura, on Twitter. <laughs> Under underalls, U N D E R A L L S, just like the burlap, itchy burlap sack you wear underneath your itchy burlap goblin robe to catch all those (laughs) green chlorophyll dribblings that come out of you when little boys pop out of the woodwork to scare scare you. That's underalls, U N D E R A L L S. That's where you find me on Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm at Instaglum, like uh, Instagram with the mood disorder. Those are the, the two <laughs> only two places you can find me, and you can never find me anywhere else. <laughs> I'm disappearing. No, um, sometimes I'm on Losers Club. Sometimes I'm on Halloweenies. That's that's pretty much it for the time being. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on socials and on the Losers Club. And you can maybe find me doing a new thing in January that I'm going to have to work through my um, feelings about actually announcing, <laughs> but <laughs> that might already be in the world right now. Maybe I'll just cut that out because I'm weird. But um, yeah, so you can find me there and talking. I'm going to be talking about the desperation and regulators, and I am super excited to talk about Stephen King and Richard Bach. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's just I know. I'm just fascinated by that. So, um, and also just losing my shit over the stand um, and Alexander Skarsgård. And, you know. <laughs> those, are the, those are the books that got me back into Stephen King. Really? Desperation. I, I definitely had fallen off for a while. Like, I, this is going to be awful to say, I'm a much bigger fan of Cocaine King. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think he did his best work when he was like absolutely out of his mind on blow. Um, <laughs> And like, hey, I'm glad he's clean and sober. That's great. But, you know, if somebody wanted to throw some of that in his coffee, maybe we would get like, (laughs) you know, we would would get like that follow up, like something on par with like Salem's Lot. Yeah. Though the stand, the shining, you know, I just Mm -hmm. think like. I don't know. I love is that a horrible thing to say? Yeah. Like, no, I'd say well, only only the part where you put it in his coffee. The rest, I think, is fine doing <laughs> right. it. You know, if that's yeah. Just... <laughs> I think like like when you read something like Under the Dome, which a lot of it he conceived when he was mm-hmm. younger. It's like it has some of that cocaine, and like we'll we'll discuss that mm-hmm. about how like when cocaine king cocaine king resurfaces in mm-hmm. uh, the books post sobriety, it's always kind of a funny moment, and we're always a little bit nostalgic mm-hmm. for cocaine king, um, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. we're very happy that he's clean and sober. So. Right. Yes. And happy anniversary, Steve. Yeah, yes. 50th anniversary with Tabby. 50th anniversary. 50 years, Jesus man. Christ. He stayed sober and he stayed married, and that's what he mm-hmm. says is like his keys to success. So, I'm just going to, yeah. if that can happen for him, I'm going to base all of my hopes and dreams <laughs> on that alone. <laughs> <laughs> so that is our episode on Troll 2. And I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so (laughs) Randall, thank you so much for joining us and for suggesting this movie. This was, it's such a wonderful little gift surprise when I was watching (laughs) this. Um, Very what the fuck gift, but yeah. Um, And listeners, thank you so much. We love you. Thank you for spending time with us. And with that, we came here to chew bubblegum and to take care of ourselves and... We are all all out of of bubblegum.
Consequence Podcast Network.